You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Your host for this episode is Sally Greenberg, Executive Director at the National Consumers League. Hello, my name is Sally Greenberg. My guests today are Dr. Joya Adele Creer-Perry. She is founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative and is most well-known for her work to remove race as a risk factor for illness like premature birth. She is also the recipient of the Congressional Black Caucus Healthcare Heroes Award. My second guest is Dr. Kelly H. Mole. She is Senior VP and Chief Science Officer at March of Dimes and is responsible for the strategic direction and oversight of March of Dimes research. In 2014, she was elected as a member of the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine. So welcome to my guests. Let's kick things off by starting with the question of, could you each tell us about your respective organizations? Dr. Joya, you want to start things off? Sure. So first of all, thank you so much. This is an honor and I appreciate you having me on the podcast and having us to talk about our work. So I am uh, an OBGYN by training and the founder and president um, of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. We're about five years old and we work to improve outcomes for Black infant and maternal health. We do that through research. So we work with organizations like the March of Dimes and others to really look at what are some of the underlying risk factors not related to one's genes or choices, but looking at the social determinants of health and the root causes of those for why we have um, disparate outcomes based upon race for infant and maternal outcomes. We also do policy and advocacy with our partners. So at the federal, state, and local level, helping to generate and work with them to generate policies to undo some of the um, harm that's been caused by past historical policies. And then uh, we also do what we call culture shift, which is things like this, which are podcast interviews, media, social media, really changing the narrative of how we think about race in this country and racism, the importance of undoing a belief of a hierarchy of human value based upon skin color. So that is our work. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Mole, tell us about your organization, March of Dimes. Yes, thank you. And I want to thank you too, Sally, for bringing Joy and I together to do this. And this is a, a real health crisis in the U.S. right now, as far as preterm birth and women and children. And the March of Dimes leads the fight for the health of all moms and babies. We believe that every baby deserves the best possible start. But unfortunately, most babies, not all babies, get a a best possible start. And we're hoping to change that. And for the last 80 years, March of Dimes has been helping millions of babies survive and thrive. Initially, we began with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's personal struggle with polio. And he led, led to the creation of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, better known as March of Dimes. And we were the first to pioneer a vaccine for polio, leading to its eradication. And then we shifted our focus after solving the polio crisis to address some of the bigger health themes and threats to moms and babies with innovations like folic acid and newborn screening and surfactant therapy. And today, we educate medical professionals and the public about best practices. We support life-saving research, both uh, translational and basic research. And we provide comfort and support to families with babies in the neonatal intensive care units as a result of prematurity. And we advocate for those who need us the most. We are stronger and more committed than ever to guiding moms through every stage of the pregnancy journey. And we are fighting for the smallest among us and advocating for their health each and every day. And we do so with the tools, technologies, and the knowledge needed to build a brighter future for all of us. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, I, you know, let, let's really break this down for our listeners. Uh, the, the whole issue of prematurity and preterm birth is not necessarily something people understand if you haven't experienced it and with members of your family. It's, it's, a, it's a very serious topic and the, the magnitude is really quite enormous. But let's have a, a primer on what does it mean when a baby is born premature? Sure, sure. So as an OBGYN, when I was in medical school, I had this happened to me firsthand. Um, my son, I was uh, 22 weeks pregnant and he was born weighing 445 grams. 
Um, and so despite being married and planning my pregnancy and being young and healthy and exercising, um, I still went into preterm labor and had my son um, early. And so uh, when he was born so early, uh, he was born in June and he was not due until October so that he was in the ICU on a ventilator. He went from one type of ventilator to another several times, even as a medical student, uh, they would call me to come to the to the NICU to say goodbye to my baby. When then I would still, he would perk up and he would keep on perking along, um, but to deal with the moment of what's happening inside the ICU and still have to go back and, and take classes and take care of the, uh, my older, my child had a, at the time a four-year-old and um, a husband. And so it is uh, the, the dealing with the baby in the ICU and also having to live your life and not knowing what's going to happen with your baby. And then once he was able to come home, he had multiple appointments, um, physical therapy, occupational therapy. He has he's, he had hearing aids. And so even when babies survive prematurity, uh, they still have multiple complications. I'm blessed that he you know, is, is able to walk and eat and go finish high school. And now he's 23 years old and eats us out of all the food. <laughs> but um, at the time, it is very stressful. And it's a lot. And it's a lot of resources. You know, one of my jokes is, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. So for me as an OBGYN, as a person working on this work, um, it's both something that I know from a practical matter of having delivered preterm babies, but also as a person who had a preterm birth myself. What's the gestation period that's ideal? Ideal is full term. So that's after... Which is how many, how many weeks? Um, normally, we want you to be at least 38, 39 weeks. Uh, it'd be nice. Uh, we Full term is 37 weeks. Uh, so yeah, we I made it to 22 with my second baby. My first daughter would say 40. She was overdue. She didn't want to leave me. She still doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of those... You know, most people don't understand. I would, I would venture to guess that that you know what what the what the full term gestation period is. Um, Dr. Malay, on on the issue of prematurity, what happens at thirty five weeks that's different than thirty nine weeks, or thirty two weeks that's different than thirty seven weeks? Give us the basics on this. Yeah, sure. So, as Dr. Joy has said, you know, any preterm birth is really anything before. 37 weeks of a 40-week pregnancy. And in this country, and actually in the world, there are about one in 10 babies born each year prematurely. And that can range anywhere from 22 to 37 weeks. And those are very different types of preterm birth. We just kind of explain that 72% of all preterm babies are born what we call late preterm, between 34 and 36 weeks. And each year in the U.S., the, the late preterm births are the majority, and they're also the majority occur in Black, non-Hispanic moms, and it's 35% higher than the rate in white, non-Hispanic moms. So it, it's a definitely the later gestational ages are predominantly African-American. And then before 30 weeks, 34 weeks is a very different model of preterm birth, and you know, babies that are born at 22 to 30 weeks are, of course, the most severe. They also occur the least frequently. And then the next highest rate of preterm birth is between 30 weeks and 34 weeks. So there's these three different time points and very different presentations. Many of those that occur in the late are medically indicated. So moms with high blood pressure that is that is really necessitating the delivery of the child probably due to preeclampsia but some of those people also have ex, you know pre-existing hypertension in the ones between 30 and 34 weeks it's very difficult to know what happened in many cases we never know in, and in joya's case i mean that exactly is is what happened and that's really where research needs to be done and at the march of dimes we're we're trying to fund research to determine from a biological level what's happening uh, in the hopes of finding some prevention, some pharmaceutical prevention or some device that could help prevent preterm birth, everything ranging from contractions of the uterus and the electrical signals to microbiome uh, changes in the vagina. So again, this is an area where we don't have a lot of information on the root cause of preterm birth. And yet it's a very expensive 
problem in the United States. Can you explain what's preeclampsia and is it how common is it? Preeclampsia is a condition that a certain proportion of women develop during pregnancy. Sometimes it can be very early in pregnancy and that's a bad outcome because the blood pressure keeps you know going up. We don't know exactly what causes preeclampsia either, but we think it definitely has something to do with the placenta. And as a result, you know, it's kind of you're in this time crunch between pushing the mom out as far as you can, but hoping she doesn't have a stroke as far as, you know, you know, going to 37 weeks. But in some cases, the blood pressure gets so high and it's not controlled by medication, you actually have to do a C-section to save the mom and the baby may have to be born early. And that, again, we don't know the causes of that. They seem to be very similar to what causes preterm birth and spontaneous preterm birth because they tend to occur more in women of color. And and that, again, is something that we don't understand. Tell us something about the difference that a day or or a week can make in the development of the fetus. And would you uh, talk to us, Dr. Joya, about how that works and why one week is so very important? We tell our patients when they come in um, and they are contracting that what we want to do is try to get them as far along as we can because the baby's organs are forming and maturing inside of them. They are the, you know, the little incubators and the babies are growing and they're built to stay inside until we get to full term. And so each week, another organ is is formed. So I can use my son again as an example. At 22 weeks, um, his skin wasn't fully formed. So he his skin sloughed off a lot. You don't think about that. When you think about a full-term baby, their skin is really soft and they have vernix on it. Um, but when you're really, really early, something is, is, a, is a, that you take for granted, your skin. So although he already had brain and, and some of the bigger organs, they weren't fully formed enough to be able to survive on that without being inside of, of a uterus. And so each day, each week, when you go from the last thing really to um, to the last couple of things that are that we need to be inside of the uterus for are your bowels. So your your bowels need to continue to stay, uh, to not be used. You don't want bacteria inside of them until they're really already fully ready to come and take on bacteria. And so when you when babies are born too early, they can get injuries to their intestines, to their bowels, and also their eyes. If there's a certain level of, of oxygen that your eyes need and, and tension around that, and when you're born really early, you can have blindness because your eyes haven't finished with those things. And then the last thing is your lungs. And that's really when we see the late premature babies that Dr. Mole mentioned, they haven't fully developed their lungs yet. And so, especially when we think about this current crisis we're in with COVID-19, having a baby whose lungs aren't ready to take on um, viruses or, and those are the reasons that we make sure we don't want babies around a lot of different people because they're more um, susceptible to illness. They haven't finished, um, their lungs haven't finished developing. So if you're born premature, they haven't developed enough. um, So you are really even more susceptible to injury. You both talked about some of the uh, problems that are apparent and evident in premature babies. Can you talk a little bit uh, more about about what the risks are and and some of the ways that that we mitigate those risks? What is I'm sure sciences and medicines are much better at treating the the problems with prematurity now, but most of the, yeah, most of the things we're guessing at, right? Because we don't know. So we know, as was mentioned, um, that. Women of color have uh, more uh, the outcomes of prematurity and preeclampsia, but we haven't figured out the why. We know the countries that have better outcomes have a better social safety net. So people have things like childcare. So some, we know it has something to do with stress um, and something to do with not having social safety net and support. So we do ask people to try to find ways to decrease their stress to look for things, ways to have, make sure they are connected and had so, have a, a social safety net. You know, but it's hard when you're working an hourly wage job and you need to go into the doctor's appointment, you know, to check on your pregnancy and you miss work and you can't be paid. You have to choose between eating and being able to make a doctor's appointment. So those are the kind of choices that women in our country have to make. And then they therefore are stressed about having to make those choices. And that increases their risk of having all kind of poor birth outcomes. So... And we really only have one real medical 
treatment for premature birth. And when one, we've been using it for a while and I wish it were around when I had my son 23 years ago. And, and that's a, a progesterone injection. And um, that has been shown to relax the uterus. You know, we have stitches that we can do use. It's called a cerclage to try to hold your cervix to keep the baby in for more time. And there's only a certain indication for that as well. But really the, our main line of treatment has been being able to um, provide this injection to make to ensure and hope that your uterus does not have contract and relax your uterus so you don't have the baby too early. So uh, you, will you talk more, uh, Dr. Joy, about certain populations disproportionately affected by premature birth? Is that, um, you, you mentioned uh, non-Hispanic African-American. Uh, will, you, will you get into that a little more uh, in a little more detail so we know which populations we're talking about? So I'm, I'm that population. Um, so black women are more likely to have a baby early in the United States and around the world. And for my own self, when I was training in medical school or residency, that's kind of where we stopped the conversation. When I had my son, the risk factors were uh, having a previous history of a preterm birth. I uh, didn't have that. My daughter had, was born full term. Having uh, you know, low socioeconomic status, I didn't have that because I was college educated and my parents are medical professionals. And so I've you know, I didn't, it was, uh, and then having uh, STI, I didn't have that. Um, and so when we go down the list, the only risk factor I had was being black. And what we haven't been able to um, articulate or have a conversation around is that there, that doesn't mean that there's something about my vagina because my skin is black that makes the baby come early, but all the different impacts of having a social and political construct around race causes more stress and more harm to certain groups of people. So we in the United States have higher rates in general of premature birth, even with white women um, in this country than in other countries, because we don't put in some of the needs that people have for every day. But we haven't been able to disentangle kind of the, um, the stressors. The, our bodies are impacted by things that happen outside of us. And um, they cause us to have responses. So when you're stressed, you get headaches, right? People can uh, relate to that. Or you'll get, if you feel nervous about something, your heart starts racing. Well, if you're always stressed and nervous, you've, you're constantly worried and your, your heart's racing and you're having chemicals moving through your body that increase your risk of having the baby early. No, and I think I think that that you know exactly what you're saying is true, and that behind all that stress and all that implicit bias and sort of a constant stress, toxic stress, it does lead to biological changes that potentially you know we could also find the cure for or the you know the treatment for those biological changes to prevent that. It doesn't mean one is taking away from the other, but I think together changing the social determinants and finding a cause that we can then potentially treat until we can correct the, the social conditions uh, would also be a reason to think about research as well. Um, can both of you talk for a moment about the link between maternal health and the baby's health and break it down a little bit for listeners? Yeah, I mean, we know that the baby, um, the, the number one reason for infant death is premature birth. Wait, say that again. The number one cause of infant mortality in the United States or around the world is, is premature birth. So that means that the babies are born too early. And so mom is really the only vehicle for that, right? Babies are not choosing. My son wasn't born early because he did some magical thing, right? That was around my body and my and what was happening in my life. Uh, so mom's health, mom's stressors, mom's, we, we talked about preeclampsia, um, having risk of having your blood pressure become really high before it's time for you to have a baby risks your life and also risks the baby's life. Um, there's a lot of data to support uh, that the, the higher the risk when there's maternal illness, you risk also infant illness. So um, there is a, a direct link between mom and baby and their health outcomes. And for a long time in this country, we focused a lot on baby, baby, baby. And Thinking about even premature birth as uh, how we can fix the NICUs and what we need to do um, on the outside without really thinking through the, the link between mom's health and the stressors we put on mom and how that also creates uh, changes in baby and increases the risk of the baby coming too early. And I'm sure Dr. Molly has more to add to that. For, for decades, we were focusing just on the babies after they came out, but science has shown that 
um, that it's really not a signal we think, we think that's coming from the baby, but it's really the mom's health, the mom's well-being, and the mom's biology um, that can lead to preterm birth. So I think this is something that is a new kind of shift in our thinking about preterm birth. And, and you know, unfortunately, the, the thing that's changed in our country is that women are waiting to have babies until later, understandably so. But a lot of times those moms have chronic conditions already at an older age, like high blood pressure or diabetes or being obese or overweight, all of which can lead to preterm birth. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's something that we have to take into consideration um, that it's definitely the mom's health that should be treated equally, if not more importantly, to assure, ensure uh, healthy babies being born. And not only healthy, but live babies. I mean, as Joya said, um, you know, I think the March of Dimes has data to show that two babies a day die of preterm birth in this country, which is, is very, very high. We are higher than any European country. We are higher than even some of the African nations. So this is a big problem and something in this country is, um, is very different than than what's going on to women in other parts of the world, and that's really what we're trying to figure out. So, what what two two babies a day is a is a huge number of babies dying of, uh, of prematurity. What are we doing yeah. uh, wrong, uh, or why are more developed countries, including some of the countries you said, you know, uh, uh, less developed countries, are doing better than we are? What what is it? Lack of healthcare, uh, access to healthcare. Is it poverty? Yeah. Is it age of the mom? Yeah. Well, so we did this. So we try to talk a lot about social determinants of health and how in this country, what would be really transformational is for us to think about health, not simply as a transaction of providing health insurance, but all the other things one needs to be healthy. So those countries in general, including the countries in Africa, have a better social connection and safety net. When you know that when the baby comes home, there's going to be a whole bunch of people to help you. That's a very relaxing feeling. I mean, I've delivered patients from other countries who they come here and they're like, wait, nobody's coming to my house to help me. I'm going to be all on my own. That narrative of survival of the fittest and that we should all um, individualism really shows up a lot when it comes to the conversations around maternal and child health and the outcome of not having support, of not connectedness, of not protectedness. So yes, almost all the most of the countries, I don't want to overspeak, but most of the countries who have better birth, I know all the countries who have better, most of the countries who have better maternal health outcomes, um, they have universal health care, which that doesn't mean single payer. It just means they believe everyone has the right to health. And so they figure out through whatever mechanisms to ensure that people have access to health. Because if you wait to give someone insurance, which is what we currently have done for generations here, since we created Medicare and Medicaid, if you wait till they're pregnant to allow them to have access to health insurance, then all the years of chronic illness um, that Dr. Mullay mentioned are already there and they have no, you're not going to fix diabetes on your first prenatal visit. So we created a system that has people not getting health insurance, not having access to care, um, having it late, having it on your zip codes, the quality of it is based upon your income and not necessarily on your needs. And so all of those are choices that we've made and the, as political choices um, that then play out in our health outcomes. And so the cultural, I think it's both a political shift that we have to make to invest in the health of all people, no matter their education, income, religion, geography, to believe that everybody has value and should have access to health as a right. And then it's also that we don't have the cultural belief that we're supposed to be there and connect with each other and support each other and value that after birth, mom is not just supposed to take six weeks and go back to work. Like that, every, all the other countries that have better outcomes, they, mom gets to stay home for a year, nine months and paid leave. They have paternity leave. They have all this other value around birth and what it means to the nation and how important it is for the economic outlook of the nation to support both mom and baby and family to ensure that they can thrive in pregnancy. We have not made that commitment in the United States. And the other thing I think too, Dr. Joy, is that, you know, in the European countries, at least, especially like Scandinavian countries, and even and even some of the, the Eastern European countries, preconception care is really emphasized. People understand 
that it's definitely the mom's health. And again, they are seeing gynecologists on a regular basis. They can plan their pregnancies. They have much less unintended pregnancies because they have access to, to contraception. And it's just a an environment that's very supportive of w- women before pregnancy and their choices. Again, adding to less stress. And, and the other thing they, as, as Dr. Joy has said, they care about every child that's born. There's sort of a cultural difference that is there that is you know very supportive of young moms whether they're single or married the other thing is most of the european countries and even eastern european countries are stable women who have a stable partner in either a marriage or some civil union and that's strikingly different than it is in our country so there's lots of differences and that's really what we're trying to figure out is what are the social differences is and is are the you know it doesn't seem like there's biological differences honestly it's it's a big big question and i think and honestly as a as an obgyn when you're trained for years to believe that we need to look for these biology things and i mean i did even studies and research in in medical school and residency looking for all these biological things and then when you look at the countries that do better than us they don't, there's nothing about biology. They have a better social safety net. They have a better infrastructure around health. They've committed to the country to value women's choices, women's rights. They make room for people to uh, to have connectedness and to say as a country, we value, that we need more births. We need people to have babies. And so we're going to support them and um, whatever choice they make. And that frame, just having that as a vision for who your identity as a nation changes how you then have resources, changes how you decide where you're going to play, who gets the resources, how you value them, and who gets access to them. So that is a very different frame. And I think you're seeing, once again, during this crisis, the outcome of us not having that as our American frame for how we think about um, healthcare and how we think about health and making sure that if you're in rural Tennessee, we see people in Alabama today and other parts of the country, who are who have not had access to health insurance and who have not had health care, and so they don't know that they have medical illnesses, and so they have risk factors that they're not even aware of. So then, when you hear that you are at risk from something because of having these risk factors, you think you don't have them, but it's not that you don't have them; it's just that you haven't had insurance to have them even diagnosed. So I was in Scandinavia last year, and uh, and they uh, the uh, tour guide told us that women and men. I think the women get something like two years of paid leave. That sounds crazy, but to, you know, compared to our American system, but uh, you're talking about, you know, really good prenatal care, universal health care, Medicaid expansion has made a, a, a big difference, I'm sure. And there are many states that refuse to expand Medicaid, like Alabama, I believe, Mississippi. Yeah, my own state of Louisiana, once they did Medicaid expansion, saw, saw improvements in maternal and child health outcomes. They only, it's only been four years. Imagine if we had 50 years of that, right? So like, that's the opportunity. We can see just that quickly, people having, instead of blaming the patients that they have hypertension and diabetes without even them giving them a, a mechanism for being able to manage those things through having insurance to go get seen and get evaluated and get medications, that narrative of, well, you're so old, you're so fat, you're so sick, you shouldn't have a baby, is has been killing us. It's been killing our nation and it's been killing all races, all um, everybody, because it, it says that we can blame you and we don't have to make choices and investments in your health and your care. You know, the the, the rate, the global rate of, of preterm birth is around 9% to 10% of all, you know, uh, babies that are born are going to be premature. But, you know, most of the European countries sit around five. So even, you know, so the social determinants and the environment and everything definitely should bring us down to five in this country, but we're at we're at above average. We're at nine point nine this year for preterm birth rates. Um, so we definitely have a lot of work to do to get us down to five percent. So I think it's a it's a dual effort of finding the biological causes, but also realizing that those biological causes are probably due to the environmental stressors that these women in this country are. And, 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 and very preventable. Let, let me raise the issue of, you know, a lot of the states that refuse to expand Medicaid for whatever reason. I will never understand why that would be. Preterm births are very expensive uh, to the system, healthcare system, hugely expensive. 
So it doesn't make any sense to not provide, you know where I'm going with this, not to provide uh, the kind of care that, that reduces the incidence of prematurity. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, go back to my own experience. My uh, son, 23 years ago, his ICU bill, NICU bill, was $600,000. And I remember the time I had a HMO and I paid my $20 copay (laughs) or whatever it was. I was like, okay, well, thank you for that. Yeah, glad you had the HMO. If I I had had 80-20 insurance, right, I would have had a $60,000 bill. Right. Um, And so that is really expensive. Having a preterm birth is very expensive to the system. And we spend a lot of time working with... um, Medicaid managed Medicaid companies with states thinking through, uh, you know, one baby, each baby costing six hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, and and how that is uh, such a, a strain on the economy, a strain on uh, their budgets. What we get lost on the circular conversation is because if we've always believed it was some biological thing we were looking for, it's hard for people to see that investing in things like home visiting investing in ensuring that if a person needs the progesterone injection, that if they have an hourly wage job, that we will make sure that case management takes it to them and they can do self-injections, like all the things to allow people to have the safe, the things that they need, that that's worth the investment in um, having insurance prior to being pregnant, expanding Medicaid, that those things will balance out the cost of the other side. Um, I think it's hard for people to see the connection because we didn't connect those things for them very well in the past. And I'm hopeful that now we're all kind of on the same page that you can decrease premature birth if you invest in women the entire lifespan, invest in sex education, invest in access to information that keeping those things away from people only increases your cost. If you don't invest in having preventative healthcare services and um, school clinics, all those things, you are paying for that in the other end when it comes to having a preterm birth. I don't think that that's how we have historically framed the conversation. And so the more and more that we do it that way, we do get some traction. Um, I do think at the point now, we have so much data to support that that's true, that people who are resistant, they are not interested in in actual (laughs) facts. I think it's becoming really hard to justify um, not investing in preventative health for people and that the cost benefit of investing in preventative health. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that too. So we, um, at the March of Dimes, we, we yearly put out a March of Dimes report card, which grades states based on rate of prematurity. But in 2019, we actually added several other uh, indicators to give us a more complete picture. And we look, we're looking at the total cost of preterm birth now, including medical costs for children, medical costs for maternal delivery, early intervention, special education services for the children, and a loss of labor market productivity. And it totaled $25.2 billion in 2019, which averaged about $65,000 per preterm birth. And that varied significantly from state to state, which is really indicative of the variety of service bundle prices between the states. So, you know, this is this is a huge, a huge societal problem that has significant um, uh, productivity and economic ramifications. And, you know, some other interesting facts are that, you know, babies and moms sometimes are covered by Medicaid, but not always. Um, And right now it depends on the circumstance of the individual. If a preterm birth is significant early enough like Dr. Joya, the infant may qualify for Medicaid disability if they don't have private insurance, but if, but it may not if it's a later pregnancy, which is where the majority of preterm births um, occurs between that 30, uh, was it 34 to 36 rate. So it, it's possible that, yeah, the, you know, that's going to be another societal burden and cost um, for these babies. Okay, well, let's talk about some policy changes. First of all, Dr. Joya, I believe I saw you testifying in in Congress uh, on this issue, and you were you were uh, in a in a hearing that included a bipartisan group of members of Congress uh, who uh, seemed very interested in how we tackle this problem and get our numbers down, uh, what we're doing wrong in the U.S. It makes our numbers twice what 
uh, other developed countries are in terms of premature births. So I also know that March of Dimes and you and many others have been involved in a bill that was uh, is before the House of Representatives, the Maternal Care Act. And it is, you know, we're talking about all the problems that we're seeing and, and, and how we haven't looked at this, uh, the problem of prematurity uh, holistically. And this bill seems to tackle that problem. I'm very excited about it. It was introduced by Congresswoman uh, um, Elma Adams. She's from North Carolina, but it has many great co-sponsors. So uh, I know the March of Dimes was involved. I know, Dr. Joy, you were as well crafting that bill. T- tell us what we need to do and if this bill would provide some of the answers that uh, uh, to the problems that you guys have raised. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So um, what we, the, we uh, were really honored last year to be a part of the creation of a Black Maternal Health Caucus. And um, Alma Adams is one of the co-founders of it with uh, Congresswoman Presley, who was a, a nurse. Uh, and so it's important that we have people in Congress who have some kind of medical background. Um, we know that uh, so much of this information, there's so much happening and the shift is so important. And when we were able to testify, really it was also to educate uh, congressmen around, or congresspeople, <laughs> congressional folks around the uh, this importance of investing in um, moms even after they have a baby. So right now in many states, including states that have done Medicaid expansion, um, if you uh, ha- once you have the baby, the baby keeps the same Medicaid for a year, but mom, uh, after six weeks, is dropped from Medicaid. And if they don't have expansion, she doesn't get anything else. If they do, then she has to apply to get re- Medicaid expansion. And if anybody's had a newborn, especially if you have a newborn that's still in the ICU, there is a lot, that's a lot to have to think about and worry about. So there's provisions in there about extending Medicaid for a year because the science is showing us that women are dying for up to a year after having a baby. So losing your insurance after six weeks is really not based on any kind of evidence or science. It was a guess that we made about 100 years ago that postpartum was six weeks and that's when your uterus involuted. But there's so many other things besides your uterus that go into postpartum around breastfeeding, um, around access to mental health, uh, postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression. And if you add on that you had a premature birth, then you really need um, some mental health uh, uh, capacity. So there are some language in there around that and really investing in data. Um, The bill that I was honored to testify uh, before Congress around uh, was the first bill that invested in uh, monies to the states to cover just counting maternal deaths. We haven't invested in counting the number of women in the United States who die um, from child complications of childbirth. We, we do count infant deaths. And so we have an accurate count of infant deaths, but we had not invested in an infrastructure to accurately count maternal deaths. And as we know, one of the main causes of infant death is premature birth. And we know that sick moms or, or, or moms who have injury are also more likely to have a premature birth. So it's all tied together. So this silo, this the goal of the bill is to try to break some of these silos and some of this um, kind of not focusing, only focusing on downstream events uh, without fixing some of these upstream causes of infant and maternal death. And it's is it a bipartisan bill? It is a bipartisan bill, yes. So we are excited about um, the opportunity. I, you know, right now we're in a moment that everybody loves moms and babies. I don't know that that ever doesn't happen, but usually everybody loves babies, but now people start to care about and love moms too. And both sides of the aisle are concerned about what happens um, and that in the world, the United States uh, is the only industrialized nation where maternal mortality numbers are going up. Um, And so that we, on both sides of the aisle, bipartisan, that's not something that we're proud of. And we're wanting to make sure that we invest in infrastructure that helps moms. And, and truthfully, if it helps pregnant birthing people, then it will also help babies because birthing people are the candy wrapper around the baby. And the more support, the more infrastructure, the more resources they have prior to giving birth, the more healthy the baby will be and the longer mom will be able to maintain a pregnancy. And, and this is a policy uh, priority for March of Dimes as well? 
Dr. Mullen? Yes, yes, very much. We've been lobbying for it for, for since it started. And again, for the same reasons that Dr. Joy has, has mentioned, uh, you know, increasing uh, maternal mor mortality review committees is key to that. And, um, you know, establishing funding and reporting of state data to the CDC is, is, um, is really going to hopefully at least elucidate what it is, um, what's the most common think causes of maternal mortality. We don't even know that in many states. And we need to get a handle on that in order to, uh, to make a change. So, yeah. And I think state-based perinatal quality collaboratives have also, you know, increased um, maternal and infant outcome outcomes um, by enlisting providers and public health officials in improving quality of care for moms and babies. So it it has all the right pieces, and I think we we definitely um, have some momentum on this one, and hopefully it will get it will get signed. And I would be um, remiss if I didn't mention um, that it has in there some language around implicit bias, um, and I think it's important for us always to just point out why that's so critical, because we know despite income or education that Black women are still more likely to have um, complications in maternal and child health. And so some of the biases and some of the, like, just like I said, I believed, I was taught that the reason I had my baby early was because I was Black. And therefore there was something innately about my Blackness, like inside of my body that made my baby just come early. And therefore that belief makes you then act very differently about how you treat patients who are Black um, around premature birth. And so undoing some of the biases and the assumptions that we have around, you know, uh, I'll give a concrete example. There have been some data that shows that Black women are less likely to get their pain managed um, when they are in labor. Uh, when they look and review the chart post afterwards, they see that a patient will ask for an epidural and it'll take longer or ask for pain medication and it takes longer than their white counterparts. And that comes from a history of just believing that Black women can handle pain better, which comes from a history of um, Dr. Cartwright and the, I mean, and Dr. Um, J. Marion Sims and the founder of, of Minor Gynecology, traveling around the United States with three Black women who were enslaved, Lucy, Betsy, and Anarka, um, and performing surgeries on them without anesthesia and, and then proclaiming that he could do that because they didn't feel pain. So when you ask medical students today, Recently, there was a study done at a medical school, and they still believe that Black people didn't feel like pain the same way that white people do. So all those biases don't, they're not something that, um, it, bias is inherent. We all have biases, but we do not have to have bias around race, around gender, around class. Those are things that we get, we learn, and we can unlearn. And so the goal of the implicit bias training is to really delve into why we believe these things about groups around, it could be around different um, ethnicities. We have assumptions around age. Um, obesity is one of the biggest biases we have in the United States. And so really to unpack why we have these beliefs and then how can we ensure that they don't interact interfere with our ability to really care for our patients and make sure that they have um, better outcomes and thrive. Um, but we have a few minutes left. I've, um, I, I wanna, uh, get back to one or two other uh, questions that, that that came up in my mind, and that is, you know, we talked about uh, women waiting longer and being a little bit older having babies, uh, and then we talked about very young women having babies. Uh, aren't those both risk factors? Yeah, they are um, for different for different reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, older women again have higher rates of comorbidity. Uh, and that's the main reason. Younger women, you know, we're not as clear um, the causes for that. Some, again, are access to early prenatal care. Um, but I think those are those. That's an observation that this kind of bell curve uh, tends to happen in a lot of biological situations in reproductive health. And, uh, you know, the, the basis for that isn't fully understood. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it, where it becomes complicated with that equity lens is if we live in a country that says you should go to school, get your education, get married before you get pregnant, that pathway leads you to waiting and waiting and waiting to get pregnant. And if you are a, a Black woman or an Indigenous um, Native and you've been dealing with the stresses of life for a long time, by the time you wait, you now have hypertension, diabetes, and now you want to get pregnant at 36 
Um, and it's a lot more complicated. And so how do we even discuss? I can tell you, I have a 27-year-old daughter. What is the best age for a Black woman to have a baby? And is it um, helpful for them for us to uh, suggest that we should wait until they have uh, completed all education, gotten married, settled down, like that uh, that sociological push uh, to have this narrative of, of waiting um, doesn't meet the biology of the reality of our current situation where our bodies have been through weathering and uh, and now our bodies are not as prepared for pregnancy as they would if they would have been prior to wait, doing the schooling and the uh, the difference between my daughter who was born three days after her due date and my son who was born in 22 weeks. <laughs> right. Yep. So uh, um, before we uh, uh, f- uh, learn from you, how you think advocates can be most helpful, you were talking about treatments for prematurity. It is there, there doesn't seem to be uh, a whole uh, host of treatments for a condition that's obviously very, very serious and very expensive. Can you talk briefly about that issue? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really exciting that we had this opportunity to have find this injection that we kind of rely on um, that causes helps your uterus to relax so that you don't have as many contractions and. We're a little worried right now because there there might be a there's a risk that it might be pulled from the market. Um, it was studies were done in, in a different as we've been talking this whole <laughs> this whole hour that the study yeah. was not done with Tell the us same, about that. yeah <laughs> the study was done um, in a different context uh, to test to see if the medicine worked or not. It was done in a country that has healthcare and has all these other things, so it's hard to determine if the uh, to extrapolate data from a country that doesn't have the same social context. Not that the people um, have magically different genes than we do in this country, but they do have a very different social context than we do. Um, And so to use that, extrapolate their findings to take a medicine away in the US that we have known that doctors depend on, um, that doctors will still try to figure out how to get if it is removed. And so we need advocates to really help us to ensure that we can keep um, the weekly progesterone injections available because patients who look across the United States need uh, access to that medication. And you found found the medication to be effective? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. I don't know any OBGYN. I, I, all of my colleagues, we cannot imagine if it was taken off the market. Um, that is all we've ever, that's all we have. Once it came, uh, we were excited and we've been using it and we found it to work. And so Nothing is perfect because you're trying to fight against a lot of different hormones that are happening in your body. And there's a lot of things going on in people's lives and a lot of reasons why it would be um, hard that that the medicine is having to fight against a lot of different things. Um, But it has been effective in many, uh, many people's for many patients and, and to have it not available would be tragic. So we'll add that to the list of many things that need to be to be addressed and fixed to reduce our levels of prematurity. Uh, so in terms of um, advocacy, uh, uh, Dr. Molly, do you have any other uh, uh, suggestions? You know, the March of Dimes has been such an incredible organization over your history and fighting polio and now fighting prematurity. We're allies and advocates as well. We love moms. We love babies. The National Consumers League was really a leader in, in our early years on infant and maternal health in working on a, what is known as the Shepherd Towner Act, which was the first federal bill to support women and infants. So we want to be part of the solution too. And we have many allies in this fight. So do you have any words of wisdom for us? What's the best way for us to work alongside you? Yes. No, we have a, a full team of um, government affairs uh, you know, staff that work <clears throat> quite um, around the clock, really, uh, lobbying um congressmen and senators, and we do our best to really <clears throat> put forward the importance of women and children's health, and, and really more recently about maternal mortality and um, that more women are dying in this country of, uh, of uh, having a baby. And I think, you know, overall, the, the bipartisan um, support has been inspiring. And I think we need to, to do that. And, and I can just speak also, especially during this crisis we're having right now with COVID-19, you know, we really pushed hard to um, get more data on pregnant women to potentially lobby for, um, for uh, 
more thoughts around clinical trials of things like vaccines or even some of the therapies in pregnant women and, and babies. You know, this is an area um, that we're very passionate about, uh, making sure that lactating moms and, um, and, and pregnant women really are included in clinical trials and in treatments for, um, for very uh, deadly types of, of problems. And that also includes preterm birth. And, you know, that's also another reason why we don't have more drugs in our armamentarium of, of medicines to use to treat preterm birth is that many, um, uh, many pharma and the big, the big, uh, the big funders of drug research uh, don't really want to go into the field of maternal health, um, part, you know, partly for legal litigation reasons. But I think it's critical that we um, in, in a lot of cases, there are not medical um, dangers, and we know that there are not medical dangers, but they rather not uh, not allow it to occur or, or have their clinical trial uh, to include pregnant women. But I think this is something that, you know, we are lobbying for and, uh, and putting that into um, to different, uh, working together with this group called PregLAC, which is the uh, research on pregnant and lactating women. Um, really is something that we're advocating for quite strongly at this time as well. Okay, well, you've given us a, a, a big to-do list. Thank you both very much, and um, in, enjoy your weekend. Stay safe, shelter in place, and we will get through this. Thanks, Sally. Thank you. You too. You be safe as well. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. Thank you.